A lot of announcements. Sunday's, uh, December's a busy time, amen? If you have your Bible, turn with me, Romans chapter 6. This morning, we're going to finish Romans chapter 6. Now, after spending five chapters in the book of Romans, you have to forgive me, my voice is... I don't know how well it's going to hold out this morning. I'm going to get this bottle of water, and maybe every now and then I'll take a drink of it and see if I can keep keep going until we get done. Brother Randy's preaching tonight, so if I can get my voice to hold out through this morning, I'm going to be just fine. Amen? After spending five chapters talking about justification, Paul makes a transition in chapter 6. The letter shifts its focus from justification to sanctification. Now, some of you may not be familiar with those terms. Justification is the means by which you are declared to be righteous by God. Sanctification is the means by which you live out that declaration. God has declared you to be righteous. Sanctification is the actual process of you living righteous. In other words, when you were a sinner, you repented of your sins, you were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And when you did, God declared you to be righteous. But in reality, you you were not righteous. You were at best a forgiven sinner. Sanctification is about living a life that reflects the righteousness that has been imputed to you by God. God's already declared you to be righteous. It's about you living a life that reflects that. So that's what chapter 6, 7, and 8 begin to deal with in the book of Romans. And so we've made that transition. Paul started by asking and answering two questions. The first question comes in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer comes immediately, God forbid. So the first question had to do with continual habitual sin. Shall we continue in sin after we've been saved? And Paul emphatically says, no, we shouldn't. Then he spent the next 13 verses refuting that idea. We stayed in those 13 verses for, I don't know, six, seven, maybe eight weeks. We were in there for a long time dealing with that, that concept that uh, the believer should not be a habitual sinner. Then in, in verse 15, Paul asked a second question. The second question was this, what then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. And so the question in verse 15 is distinct from the question in verse 1 in that the question in verse 1 dealt with continual sin. Shall we continue in sin? The question in verse 15 deals with a singular act of sin rather than the habitual sin. He's asking, is it okay if I sin occasionally? The sin in view here is not a sin that is accidental. It's not that I made a mistake, I I stumbled into it. This is a sin that is deliberate. It is a sin that the person committing the act knows they're committing sin. They go into it with their eyes wide open, but they excuse it because of the infrequent nature of it. I don't do this very often. This is not something I do all the time. This is is just, I'm going to give myself a free pass this one time. And so Paul sets out to establish that because we've been set free from the law, 
does not mean that we can just go sin anytime we want to sin. It does not mean that we have the license to give ourselves a free pass. The transition from law to grace does not leave us free to sin anytime we feel like we're going to sin. Instead, it gives us, and this is the point that was made in the last lesson that we did, it gives us the responsibility to live right. We've been saved from sin. We understand what it meant to be saved from sin. And now we have an obligation to righteousness. We have an obligation to obedience. And to explain that, Paul used the illustration of a slave. The slave metaphor said that whenever you were in sin, you were a slave to sin. When you're a slave, you don't control your actions. Sin controlled you. When you were lost, sin had authority in your life and sin controlled you. But now that you've been saved, you're a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to obedience to God. You're a slave to God, if you will. And you have an obligation on the basis of your salvation to obey God, not to obey sin. And so that was the first lesson we taught and after the question in verse 15 brought us through verse 18 dealing with the metaphor of slavery. And now we're going to pick up in verse 19. We're going to finish the chapter. And what we're going to start with Paul explaining why he's using the metaphor of slavery and then bringing it all to a conclusion of verse 23. Let's start at verse 19. It says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your member servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your member servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become the servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we'll start with verse 19. I'm going to read it again, then we'll kind of break it down. It says, first of all, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you've yielded your member servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your member servants to righteousness unto holiness. I want to deal with that first phrase before the colon. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. I'll deal with that first, then we'll move to the rest of the verse. So Paul begins today's lesson, begins this passage by acknowledging that the slave metaphor may not be the most perfect example of the Christian life. After all, we're, we may be slaves to God, but Paul also describes us as the bride of Christ. We're also described as the adopted children of God. We are even called by John the friends of God. So a slave, it may be a slave relationship, and that metaphor may apply, but that metaphor is obviously not a full expression of our role in relationship to salvation. What we have with God is a lot more than just slavery. Amen. We're his children. We're his bride. 
We are his friends. We're not just his slaves. But Paul points out that he's using the metaphor of slavery because it's a metaphor that they understand. It is something that is common to them. In the first century, slavery was a common human relationship. It was something that they could easily relate to. And Paul says the reason that he has chosen this is because of the infirmity or the weakness of their flesh. What he's saying is the the weakness of their flesh, the infirmity of their flesh makes it difficult for them to grasp spiritual things. There are spiritual concepts that we in our carnal mind have a hard time getting a hold of and understanding. So Paul says, I'm going to use ordinary things from everyday life to describe deeper spiritual things that you don't have the capacity to fully grasp and understand. And even though the example I'm going to use is not perfect in relation to what I'm trying to describe. It's enough for you to understand what I'm talking about. So because of the weakness, because of the infirmity, because of the way that your flesh is and its inability to comprehend spiritual things, I'm going to boil them down to natural things that you do understand. Jesus did the same thing. He talked about a sower and seed and soil when what he was really talking about was the condition of the hearts of men. He used the same type of analogies and metaphors to help us grasp the deeper meaning of spiritual concepts. So the slave analogy is not a perfect analogy, but it is there because we can understand it. It helps us to see that we have an obligation to God. We have a responsibility to God. We have been saved from sin. We were bound by sin. We obeyed sin. We didn't even have a a choice in the matter. Now that we've obeyed God, we do have a choice in the matter, but we have an obligation to him. We have a responsibility to him. He's the master. We're the servant, and we follow him. So that's why we're using the slave metaphor. Now he goes on and expands on it. For as you've yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. The repetition of the phrase is just the emphasis. It was bad. It wasn't just iniquity. It was iniquity that yielded iniquity that yielded. It was sin that caused sin. You never know sins that way. You, you don't just, it's kind of like Lay's tater chips. You don't just get one. You know, you can't, you get one and sin yields sin that yields sin. A lie causes a lie that causes a lie. You, you, you know the pattern. It was iniquity unto iniquity. Even so, now yield your member servants to righteousness Unto holiness. So the slave analogy serves to make a strong point. Just as we once yielded to uncleanness and iniquity, we now yield to righteousness and holiness. Now, what's happening here in these two phrases is a before and after description of our lives. And the use of the word now in the second statement helps us to understand that that's where we're living. We're now living in the after portion. Paul isn't writing to sinners out in the world. He's writing to the church. And and we were once service to sin. We were once in the control of sin. We once yielded our members to uncleanness and iniquity. But now we're servants of God. And we yield our members as servants to righteousness and holiness. Amen. 
So slaves offer their bodies. That's what he means by members. It's members of your body, as your hands, your feet, your 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 you. The slave offers his body, the members of his body, in service to his master. So when we serve sin, oh, our body serves sin. When we serve sin, we offer the members of our body to the service of sin, and it yielded uncleanness and iniquity. But now that we serve God, we are to offer our bodies to God. And our bodies become the servants of God, just like our bodies were the servants of sin. And the result should be righteousness and holiness. Amen? I say it so often, it really does matter how you live. That's what Paul's saying. It really does matter how you live your life. If you remember, we talked a few weeks ago about the fact that in the 13th verse of chapter 6, Paul gave the first imperative in the whole book. And an imperative is a command. And all this time we've been talking and Paul had not really given any instruction. He'd just been laying out his case. And then in the 13th verse, he gave an actual imperative. He gave an actual command. And in that passage, he commanded us to yield ourselves to God and our members to righteousness. Now we find that same imperative repeated in the latter half of this verse. We are admonished here to yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. So we were commanded to yield ourselves again to God. It's the, it's the same imperative. The, the context has changed. Back in verse 13, we weren't talking about slavery. It was a whole different set of imagery that we were using, but the, the, the end result is the same. Just as we once yielded our members, our bodies to sin, now we are commanded by Paul to yield our members, our bodies to righteousness to godliness, to holiness. There are two key thoughts that are being developed here. First of all, we should put the same energy into serving God that we used to put into serving sin. He makes the analogy. They're, in the same, they're on the same level playing field. With the energy with which I used to pursue sin, that's the energy with which I should now pursue serving God. We used to serve sin with our whole hearts. We served sin with our finances. We served sin with our time. We served sin with all of our human effort. Our mind was constantly thinking of how we could do that or how we could be more involved in that or how we could give more of ourselves to it. We ought to serve God in the same way. Amen. We are serving with our whole heart. We are serving with our finances. We are serving with our time. We ought to serve Him with all of our human effort. Your heart should be consumed not with how you can fulfill the desire of the flesh, but how you can fulfill the desire and the will of God for your life with the same energy. The second point that he's making is that when we were serving sin, righteousness had no part to play in our lives. There wasn't any righteousness there. When we serve sin, we serve sin completely. So then when we serve God, we should also serve God completely. When we serve righteousness, sin should have no part to play in our lives. We should serve righteousness to the exclusion of sin. Amen? The last phrase in that verse says, servants to righteousness 
unto holiness. And that last phrase makes a very important statement that tells us that slavery to righteousness yields holiness. As we obey righteousness, as we follow after the will and the word of God, as we obey the, the, I talked about last time that we were in this lesson, amen, we're not subject to the law uh, of Moses, we're not subject to the law, uh, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, we're subject to the law that's in the word of God. We're still subject to the moral law of God. We still obey righteousness. We still know if it was wrong, whenever God took his finger, wrote it in tablets of stone and said, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not murder, guess what? God hasn't changed. Amen. We're not bound to some rule book. We're bound to the word of God. Amen. And if we follow after righteousness, if we walk after the word and the will of God, the result is Holiness. Now that word is the word for sanctification. That's what we've been talking about this entire time. All the time that we've been in chapter 6, we've been talking about holiness. We've been talking about sanctification. There have been two main themes in the book of Romans so far. The first was justification. It took up five chapters, and now we are discussing sanctification. Justification was getting in right standing, right legal standing with God. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he paid the price for our sins. He satisfied the penalty for our sins. He died for us. That's how we are justified. We're not justified on the basis of anything we do. We're justified on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection. He died for us. He saved us. It is his righteousness, not ours. Amen? We're put in right standing with God on the basis of the fact that the price has already been paid for our offenses. That's justification. But once we're justified, we now have an obligation to obey the word and the will of God. That is sanctification, is our obedience to the word and the will of God. Justification, Paul tells us, yields sanctification. If, we're, if we obey him, if we become the servant of righteousness, we become the servant of God, what it yields in our life is righteousness and holiness. Sanctification. Amen? So obedience to the word and will of God. Yields holiness in our lives. Slavery to righteousness results in godliness. Does that make sense? I'm glad it does. Verse 20. For when we were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Now this statement continues to emphasize the before and after contrast of verse 19. It's a very condensed statement. It has one half of the equation. It states the obvious and implies the equal and opposite is true. The statement is that when you were servants of sin, you had nothing to do with righteousness. The implication is that now that you're the servants of righteousness, you should have nothing to do with sin. Remember, this is the question we're answering. 
this chapter, you can't afford in the process of chapter six, you can't afford to lose sight of what we're talking about. We're talking about sin in the life of a believer. Amen. So to the degree that when you were the servants of sin, you didn't have anything to do with righteousness. Now that you're a servant of righteousness, you shouldn't have anything to do with sin. Verse 21 says, what fruit had you then? And those things whereof you're now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. So what fruit did you reap from your life of sin? What good did sin ever do you? What kind of fruit did it produce for you? What good came from it in your life? The answer is simple. Nothing good came from sin. The only thing that came from sin was death. Now, sin always presents itself as the best way to get something good. It always presents itself in, in, in the idea that it reaps you rewards. But Paul said, what kind of reward did you ever get out of sin? The best you got from sin was death. Paul's making the same observation that Jesus made when he asked, what would it profit a man if it gains the whole world and loses his soul? Really, what did you get out of sin if it costs you eternal life, if it causes you to live in eternal death? What did you get from sin? All of the benefits of sin, all of the gains of unrighteousness, they are all temporary and fleeting. They don't last but just a moment like a vapor, and then they're gone, and the end of them is death, both, spirit, both physical and spiritual. But the fruit of serving God, in contrast, is abundant life here and eternal life in glory. Amen. The, the, the fruit of living for him and serving him is life and that everlasting. That's the contrast we're making between sin and righteousness. Now, there's another important component to this verse. When we were under the dominion of sin, we did things that we are now ashamed of. Ashamed is a strong word. It's not the same word as guilt. He's not saying that we, we feel guilty. It's not even the same word as regret. Maybe that we, we regret what we did. What, what he's saying is that we are ashamed. Shame describes an inner pain. It describes humiliation. It describes disgrace. What he said is former sinners, we should look back on our past sin, not with a sense of nostalgia, not with a sense of those were the good old days, but with a sense of shame. The things we used to do should cause us to wonder how we ever could have did those things. Shame, listen, this is important. It may seem semantical, but it isn't. Shame is a necessary component of repentance and sanctification. 
In our world, shame is viewed in a very negative light. Shame has to do with the humbling of human pride. It has to do with the degradation of self-worth. It has to do with ourselves being lowered in our own eyes. Shame is not a comfortable feeling. It is not something that we look at as a positive thing. But in regards to sin, listen to your pastor, shame is a healthy thing. In regards to sin, shame for sin is the evidence that the dominion of sin has been broken in your life. Shame for sin is the barrier that keeps you from going back to what you've forsaken. Shame for sin is the evidence that you're no longer under the influence of that sinful mind. So to have shame for sin is a good thing. To the converse, not to feel shame for sin is a bad thing. It can be a sign that your, your mind is still under the dominion of sin. It can be a sign that, that you're, you're in a place where you very easily return back to what you left. You know, the, the kid that got his hand caught in the cookie jar and repented, repented because he got his hand caught in the cookie jar, not because he was ashamed of eating the cookies. Get, you turn your back on him and see what he's going to do. Yeah, he going. I like cookies. Going right back to the cookie jar. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Paul said the things you used to do, you're now ashamed of them. There, there's a safety in being ashamed of what. Listen, this. If you've got a habitual sin problem in your life, you need to pray and ask God, Lord, don't just forgive me. Help me see the wrong in what I did. Let me reach that place where I become ashamed. Oh, we don't want to go there. They've got to tear down my pride to be ashamed. It's that shame that keeps you from going back. If you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and you find yourself asking for forgiveness for the same thing, the same flaw, that same thing that keeps coming back and getting you over, this is what you need to pray. You need to say, God, help me see what I ought to be ashamed of. Where's the shame in it? Because it's the shame that protects me from going back to it. Amen? Verse 22 says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So to be free from sin means that we have become the slaves of God and the two are mutually exclusive. I can't be the slave of sin and be the slave of God at the same time. If I serve sin, I'm a slave to sin, not a slave to God. But if I serve righteousness, if I'm set free from sin and I, I walk after the things of God, then I, I serve God, not sin. The two are mutually exclusive. Now, the terminology has shifted in the course of the verses of chapter 6. When we first introduced the idea of slavery, 
We talked about how that we were called servants of righteousness. Now Paul calls us servants of God. Are we slaves of righteousness or are we the slaves of God? There is no significant difference between the two. To be a servant of righteousness is to be a servant of God, and to be a servant of God is to be a servant of righteousness. Perhaps the reason for the changing of the terminology is because Paul wants us to realize that we're not just bound. We're not just a a servant of righteousness. We're not just bound to the blind obedience of some set of rules or laws or guidelines that are laid out in an impersonal book. We are the servants of God. There is a personal relationship that stands behind our obedience. Rather than being bound to some impersonal set of rules, we are bound to God. And if we're the servants of God, then we're going to obey the word and the will of God. We are, we are bound to God. We serve, we serve God. We don't just serve the principles of holiness. We don't just serve the principles of righteousness. We serve God. We don't just obey a set of rules somewhere. This isn't about a rule book. This is about serving God. This is his word. Amen? So Paul's personalizing it. I'm not just a servant of righteousness. I am a servant of God, and I live by his word. I live according to his will. I live in submission to him. I do that, not because a preacher said I've got to do that. I do that, not because a religious system said I've got to do that. I do that, not because I've got to do that to be a part of the church. I do that because I have a relationship with God. I am the servant of God, not just righteousness, not just holiness, not just purity and godliness. I'm the servant of God. That brings us to the final verse in Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the final verse in chapter 6. And it's full of contrast. Sin is contrasted to God. Wages are compared to a gift. Death is set against life. But the sharpest contrast in verse 23 is the contrast between the nature of the rewards. It is the contrast between wages and gifts. That's what really defines this verse. If we continue in sin... We earn the final payment of sin, which is death. But if we live for God, we don't earn anything. It's not about what we earn. He gives us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The contrast between wages and gifts underscores the contrast between law and grace. 
Under law, you earned your reward. You, you related to God on the basis of wages, on the basis of what you earned from God. And under the law, all have sinned. Every man has sinned and come short of the glory of God. And every man deserves the wages of sin, which is death. But under grace, a person relates to God, not in the term of wages, of what I earn from God, but in the terms of grace. It is a gift that I receive from God. I don't receive from God what I have earned from God. I receive from God instead the gift of God. And even though we have all sinned, and even though we all deserve death, the gift of God is eternal life. The contrast here is, is the contrast between getting what you deserve on the one hand and getting the free gift of God on the other hand. Amen. Not what you deserve, but what grace provides for you. Which one you receive, however, is determined by whose servant you are. This is the capstone of the chapter. If you serve sin, you do so unto death. But if you serve God, you do so unto eternal life. The gift of grace. Listen, he ends with this phrase, the gift of grace is only available to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that underscores a very important point. Grace may be free to us, but it was not free to God. It was made available through the incarnation. God became a man. And as a man, he bore the weight of our sins. He died for us on an old rugged cross. And on that, that torturer's rack where they had beaten him and they had pierced his side and nailed his hands and feet and put a crown of thorns upon his head, there his death purchased both freedom from sin and eternal life. It cost God greatly to redeem us. Amen. There's one more thing I want to say about this verse because this is, this is a very popular verse. Everybody in this room probably can quote this verse, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. All my life, I've heard that verse applied in the context of the unconverted to tell the sinner, you need to repent. You need to be saved because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And while that's not a misuse of the verse, the, the application is general. It applies to everyone. I want to point out to you this morning that the intended audience of this verse was not the world. This is the capstone of a discussion of whether or not a Christian, a believer, should have sin in their lives. This is Paul's final answer to the question of sin in the life of a believer. 
This is the conclusion of chapter six. This is the conclusion of these passages that have made a very strong case that the believer should not continue to live in sin. And Paul wants us as believers to know that if we continue in sin, if we continue to be the servants of sin, then we will earn the wages of sin, which is death. But if we become the servants of God and we continue as the servants of God, that's the context of the discussion. Then we receive the gift of God which is eternal life. I don't know if there's a stronger statement in Scripture against the notion of eternal salvation, eternal security, once saved, always saved. The whole chapter has been about admonishing us not to return to sin once we've experienced salvation. The entire thing has been about telling us that we don't need to go back to that which we came from. And this final verse is the capstone of the whole thing. It makes it abundantly clear that if we return to the dominion of sin, whether we were once saved or not, if we continue to serve sin, we become sin's servant. And if we're sin's servant, we earn sin's wages. And the death there is not physical death. It is eternal It is spiritual. But if we are the servants of God and we continue as the servants of God, then we receive. We don't earn anything. We receive the gift of eternal life. I don't know about you, but I want to receive the gift of eternal life. Amen? The the point is not to cause you to call your salvation into question. I believe you have security in Jesus Christ. The point is to cause you to become aware of the danger of losing out with God. The point is to cause you to become aware that you can't continue to live in sin and remain the servant of God. We spent a long time in chapter 6. And all of it has been geared towards establishing the fact that a Christian should not live in sin. I've said over and over again, if you sin in a moment of weakness, you have an advocate with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. You can repent of your sins and receive forgiveness for them. And I don't want to ever be misunderstood on that point. I'm not saying you can't ever sin. You, you may mess up. You're going to make a mistake. Sometimes your temper is going to get the best of you, and you're going to say hateful things to your spouse that you didn't mean to say. Just getting right down where I live. Amen. Sometimes you're going to have to repent. When that happens, there is an advocate with a father through the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous. You can repent and be forgiven. But that's not a license to live in sin. That's not a license to have habitual, continual sin in your life or even deliberate sin in your life. Sin should be the exception, not the rule in the life of a believer. Because if you yield yourself to sin, this is the whole chapter in a nutshell. If you yield yourself to sin, 
you become the servant of sin. And if you're the servant of sin, you earn the wages of sin. And the wages of sin is death. That's the whole chapter in a nutshell. To receive the gift of God, you have to be the servant of God. And to be the servant of God, you can't serve sin. Would you stand with me, Brother, Brother Ryan? Would you come to the music?